So let's go to our God in prayer and ask him to help us now as we will look to his word. Pray with me. Our Father, we come gathered together as a sinful people again this morning. We come to you and even show up here to worship you, not on the basis of our strength or goodness or righteousness, but completely on the basis of your grace and mercy, covered in the blood of your Son, declared righteous by faith in him. So we pray that as we are now your people who are called by your name, that you would be good to us now. Show yourself to be faithful yet again today as we look to your word. Continue now to minister to us as we sit gathered as your people. Give us eyes to see what's true and ears to hear it, and hearts that would love it. Father, we pray that you would show us our need of Christ, that you would show us Jesus from your word, and that you would use this time to stir us up to love and good works. And we pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. So I was tempted in my preparation this week. I was joking with Mackenzie about it. I said, man, I'm tempted to do like three different introductions to this sermon. There's so much good stuff in this text today that I, uh, I thought about it. But then I thought better and wisdom prevailed. And so what I want to do is just talk plainly with you as we make our way to the Bible this morning. There are concerning tendencies in the church to where we find ourselves. Concerning things. There's a tendency to hyper-individualize the Christian life. To make it all about me and my progress. Rather than upholding the inherent corporate nature of Christianity. That's one tendency that's concerning. Another one is a tendency to emphasize certain things that would mark a Christian, but then often neglecting things that are more primary in the pages of Scripture. The first three chapters of Ephesians are epic. We have been soaring in the clouds of grace and love and mercy in the clouds of redemption and the eternal plan of God and the finished work of Christ. And as we turn now to the beginning of Paul's words of instructions to the Ephesians about how they're to live together in the church, ask yourself this question. Based on everything I have ever heard, that I've ever read, or that I've ever been taught, how would I begin a letter to a local church about how they are to live together? What would you put first? Keep that in your mind. Let's now look to the Word of God. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking today at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat that. We will get the words to the text on the screen behind me, and you'll be able to follow along with us just fine by using the screen only. Now that you've had just a moment to make your way to Ephesians 4 and verse 1, I'm going to read Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 for us. This is the word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have a three-part message for us this morning. In part one, we're going to consider how the gospel informs and drives how we live together. Part two, we're going to consider several of the main things of the Christian life. And in part three, we will consider the basis of our unity in the church. So here we go. Part one for the copious note takers in the room. Part one, we're going to consider how the gospel informs and drives how we live, and we're going to look to verse one during this time. Put your eyes on verse one. You see that Paul says, I therefore. And while I think that this observation that many have made when we study scripture is kind of, it's a little cute for my taste. I do think it's helpful when people will say, whenever you see the word therefore on the page, you should ask, what is the therefore therefore? Again, a little cute for me, but it is helpful. What is the therefore therefore? Paul is going to write to the Ephesian Christians about how they're to live together in the church, and it's very clear that in his mind, everything that he's going to write in chapters 4 to 6, as it's broken down in our translations, is grounded on what's been written in chapters 1 to 3. I trust that's clear to us all. And what is that exactly? What's he written in chapters 1 to 3? These are just like the mountaintop highlights. I'm just going to do a little drive-by right now. Chapter 1. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Everyone. Not just most of the blessings, all of them. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Not based upon anything in us, but based upon the grace of God alone. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of God in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through the blood that he shed for us. All of this according to God's eternal plan that he has set forth in Christ. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those of us who did not have an inheritance have now been guaranteed an eternal one. We have been called to the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. We, the saints, are God's inheritance, and God delights in us. Christ has been given to us, the church, as our head, and God's power toward us in him is incomprehensibly great. That's chapter one. Chapter two, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not sick in need of healing, not dirty in need of some cleaning, dead in need of resurrection. We were following the course of the world. We were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan, the ancient serpent who is the devil. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. We've been united to Jesus by faith. God has done this so that he might display the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ forever. We have been saved by grace, not merit. We have been saved through faith, not works. All of this so no one may boast. It's on account of Christ, not us. The whole of salvation is a gift. We have been created 
in Christ Jesus for good works that God has already prepared beforehand for us to walk. Those of us who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And Christ has reconciled us to one another and he has reconciled all of us to God. The church, which is Christ's body, is all about Jesus. It is founded on him and we are being built up in him by the spirit into a dwelling place for God. That's chapter two. Chapter three, Paul's entire ministry is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles and to make plain the mystery of Christ that was hidden for ages in God. God is displaying his wisdom and glory in the heavens through the church. God is accomplishing his eternal purposes through Christ in us, and so we should not lose heart. Finally, the greatest thing that could ever happen for us is that we would be strengthened by God's Spirit in our inner being so that we might be able to comprehend and know the love of Jesus for us and thereby might be filled with all the fullness of God. Like I said, we've been soaring in those wonderful truths. And so, question. As we transition to the like boots on the ground material, you know, that's chapters four to six, how is it that the apostles viewed the Christian life? How is it that Paul approaches the Christian life in this letter? Two thoughts for us. Biblically, I would suggest that the apostles approached the Christian life in a way that is identity forward. Identity forward. What I mean by that is that we have a new identity now. We are in Christ Jesus by faith. We have been united to him in such a way that we've been adopted into the family of God and thereby have a new name now. Our identity is fundamentally different than it was before, and we live from that. We are not chasing after our adoption. We've been adopted. We're not chasing after a new name. It's been given. We're not chasing after Jesus. He has united us to himself. That's the first piece, identity forward. And we live from that, not in pursuit of that. Second piece, though, is that it is clearly in the minds of the apostles, the Christian life is status forward. Status meaning we are now justified. We were guilty. We were corrupt. No longer. We have a new status. We are declared righteous by God. We now have peace with him through his Lord, through our Lord, excuse me, Jesus Christ. We are secure and we live from that status, not chasing after it. We are not in pursuit of our justification. Justification is ours. We are not pursuing peace. It's been given to us by Christ. As we've said so many times here, and we'll continue to say, assurance and safety and security before the Lord in Jesus is the essence of the Christian life. It's not the pursuit of it. And so... That makes all the difference in the world, brothers and sisters, as we think about how to live. In the way that we live, we're not trying to take hold of something that isn't already ours. We are living from what God has done for us in Christ. It's a fundamentally different perspective. 
the posture of the apostles seems to be one that would sound like this. As the Apostle Paul, through the words of Scripture, would speak to us even today. You are redeemed. You are. And now, beloved, here is how we, the redeemed, live. And he's going to tell us. Put your eyes back on verse 1. That was all the therefore part. As we move forward in verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, biblically, that language of walking is just a figure of speech referring to how we live. So when he says walk this way, he means live this way. Now, what does Paul mean? It's a serious question. What does he mean by writing these words, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Because some people, when they come to this verse, say some things that are pretty concerning, troubling, frightening. Paul does not mean I'm contending. You have your text in front of you and you have the letter of the Ephesians in mind. Paul does not mean that we would live in a manner that would make us worthy of salvation. It's not possible. He also does not mean that we would become the kind of people God would have been happy to save in the first place. Not possible. Rather, what I understand him to mean as I have studied the text and you have it in front of you, is that we are to live in a way commensurate with the gospel. In other words, the gospel informs our living. Because of Jesus, because of what he has done, in light of the grace of God that's been lavished upon us in Christ, there is a certain way that we then should live. And what does that look like? Paul is about to start outlining that for us, beginning in verse 2. So that was part one. And we're now moving to part two of the sermon where we're going to consider several of the main things of the Christian life, several of the primary things of the Christian life. As the apostle is going to now begin to tell us what it looks like to live in a way that is commensurate with the gospel, and as he's going to begin to tell us how we ought to live together in the church. Now, it's interesting, I think, that many of the things that we're about to talk about because they're on the page are not what you often hear or hear the most about when you think about or hear a message on the Christian life. What does Paul start with? Like I asked you, how would you start if you were writing a letter to a church? Here's how you should live. Well, let's look at how he starts, beginning in verse 2. We're going to look at verses 2 and 3 now for just a moment. He begins, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's unpack that a little bit. Beginning with all humility and gentleness. When Paul writes about humility here, he certainly would mean humility before God. Absolutely. But in light of what God has done for us in Christ, I think his intention as well is that we are humble toward our brothers and sisters. We're humble toward each other. We don't think highly of ourselves. We realize that anything good in us is God's grace to us. We are debtors, all of us. We in living humble lives with each other, don't look down on other people in the church. We don't have a critical spirit toward them. 
This is one of those sermons, guys. I mean, just be frank. Like, I'm preaching a better message than I can live, and I'm preaching a better message than you can live, right? This kind of stuff, it nails all of us because we naturally, in Adam, have a critical spirit. We naturally, in Adam, are proud. We tend to look down on others. We tend to exalt ourselves. We tend to be hard on other people. We tend to be very lenient with ourselves, like we confessed this morning. To live humbly with one another would also mean that we genuinely seek to understand one another. That's huge. It requires humility to genuinely try to understand another person's perspective and another person's struggle. Another thing that it would mean to walk humbly with one another is that we would, to use biblical language, to use the language of Jesus, we would consider others as more important than ourselves. Reflect with me for just a moment. Where does our poor treatment of other people often come from? Does it not come from the fact that we love ourselves above all? Does it not also come from the fact that we regard our own interests as the most important thing that could ever be considered? And so, when my expectations are not met, when things are not going the way that I think they should go, When things become difficult for me, I hurt other people. This is the cause of so much bitterness and argument and division. We are to live humbly with each other. Paul doesn't just say with all humility. He also says with all humility and gentleness. So we are to be gentle toward one another, not hard, not harsh, not abrasive. This is tough for us too, some of us more than others. We are to be sincere, absolutely. We're to be earnest, for sure, but not threatening, not exacting, not edgy all the time. We should be compassionate, seeking to restore people who are caught in sin, rather than the condescending, looking down on them thing, or rather than being harsh and, you know, I'm going to love them by saying the truth to them and cut them to pieces. We should be compassionate in the way that we seek to restore each other. We should seek to help those who are weighed down. Galatians chapter 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anybody's caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul goes on, though, in verse 2. He's already told us that we should live together with all humility and gentleness. He says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I think it's fair to say that love and patience go together. I say that not because it's my opinion, but it's written elsewhere in God's Word. Love is patient and kind. Love bears all things. It endures all things. Love by nature is long-suffering. So when he says, be patient and bear with one another in love, it's like, yeah, those things go together. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are not constantly frustrated with our brothers and sisters because they're not doing as well as we think they should be. 
I think every one of us could raise our hand and confess that we have experienced times where we are not doing this, where we are frustrated with a brother or sister in the church. You should be better than you are. Why are you still struggling this way? We ought not act like that. Consider, brothers and sisters, how patient God has been with us. How could we then not be patient with each other? God works in us and he teaches us in various ways, does he not? How many times have you had that eye-opening experience where you have seen your own sinfulness, you've seen your own stubbornness, maybe even your own stupidity, and then you see God's patience toward you? You've been there? God may as well in that moment have audibly said to you, I have been so patient with you. Now you go and be patient with that person. Now you go and be patient with these people. In love, we bear with one another. It's what we do in the church. When it comes to what would mark us as Christians, love for our brothers and sisters is as significant as it gets. I've made this remark a few times, and I know I know we agree. If we were to be writing down things that should characterize a Christian that would mark him or her out, perhaps at the very top of the list would be this reality of love for the brothers and sisters. How will the world know that we're Christ's? Jesus tells us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for them, no. If you have love for one another. It's how the world will know you. Love for the brothers and sisters is perhaps the most distinguishing mark of a Christian. Think about the words of the Apostle Paul elsewhere, where he makes clear the significance of love in the life of the church. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I'm not trying to break anybody's heart right now that had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding because you think it's a wedding passage. I'm just reading God's word to you because this is about love in the church. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Gifts, faith, zeal. If we don't love others, what are they worth? That's what Paul said. Brief insertion here for just a moment. This is not an interruption. This is plain. This might be clear to you, but I want to make it redundantly clear. All of these things that we have been considering are things that your brothers and sisters desperately need from you. As we've said before, God is in need of nothing. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. 
Your brothers and sisters desperately need these things from you. Humility and gentleness. Now, God is honored in it. Amen. He is glorified when we live together this way. But He doesn't need it. We need it from one another. Gentleness, humility, patience, love. Just like your brothers and sisters are the ones who need these things from you, these things, as you grow in them, are not for you. They are for the good of others. This is the nature of the Christian life. That as we are matured in Christ Jesus by the Spirit, our brothers and sisters are the ones who benefit. Yes, our life goes better. Yes, we have more joy. But it is not for our benefit primarily. It is for the good of those around us. Now, back to the passage. Verse 3. Paul also says, after the humility and gentleness, patience and love, peace, that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager could be rendered making every effort to maintain. Either way, the point's the same. Right? It's something that we should absolutely pursue. Unity. The unity of the Spirit, I think by that Paul means there is one Spirit, the Spirit of God, who is at work in the church and in each of us. He, the Spirit, is the one who has brought us together and made us one. And it is by His fruit being born out in our lives that we will maintain and express that unity. In the bond of peace, peace before God and with one another because of Jesus. We consider that pointedly in chapter 2. So what's the takeaway from even verse 3? It's pretty clear that we are eagerly to pursue unity in the church and we're to strive for it. All right, so real talk, we will disagree about any number of things. Amen? We will disagree about a whole bunch of stuff in the church. This group of people sitting here this morning, depending on the topic, there would be a whole host of opinions, many of them strongly held. And that's not inherently wrong, that we would be like that. It's good to be a thoughtful person and have reasons to think what you do. We will, in thinking all kinds of different things and in just being different people and in being sinners, we will also inevitably sin against and offend each other regularly. There are opportunities for it pretty much every day. So the question then is, what do we do with that? The fact that we will disagree about stuff, the fact that we will offend each other and sin against each other, what do we do with it? Well, the answer is that we seek to maintain unity. The answer is that we pursue reconciliation and restoration. And this, as we're going to continue to see, this unity is not some kind of surface level thing. This unity runs deep in the things that matter most. Before we move on to part three, the basis of our unity, just consider briefly with me for a moment how important unity is in his church to the Lord Jesus. Christ in the high priestly prayer in John 17 prays quite a bit about this, that we as his people would be one, even as he and the Father are one. So as you make a list of things to pray for your church, for this congregation, unity around Christ ought to be near the very top of the list. It is something that we pray for in every single elders meeting. Unity 
brothers and sisters, this is important. Hear, hear this, please. Unity in the biblical sense does not mean we agree about everything. Far from it. Rather, it means that the things we have in common far outstrip the things about which we disagree. That's huge. The things we have in common in terms of their significance far outstrip the things about which we disagree. And because humility and gentleness increasingly characterize us, because we are patient with one another, because we bear with one another in love, we therefore live charitably with each other in our disagreements. To separate from people that you disagree with doesn't require any grace. It's very natural. The world is good at it. To live peaceably with people when you have legitimate disagreements about things that matter to you, that's unusual. And that is what we are called to in the church. It's a very applicable word for our day and frankly every day that has ever been. So the question now on the front of my mind, I hope it is with yours, on yours too, is what then, brother, is the basis of this unity that you're talking about? What is it that unifies us? Well, that's part three, the basis of our unity. We're going to look at verses four to six, the basis of our unity in the church. You can put your eyes on the text. Paul's going to name a number of things, and we're going to consider them one at a time, but I just want us to look at them briefly. So there's one body, that means the body of Christ, and one spirit. There's one hope to which we've been called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's the basis of our unity. All of these things are so much more significant than the stuff we often disagree about. One other important note, as I've already said, this is not just unity for unity's sake. There was a movement in the middle of the 20th century, often known as the ecumenical movement in the church in the West, where the great goal of that movement was unity, often to the neglect of doctrine, like we're going to jettison some doctrinal convictions so that we can have unity. That is not what we're talking about here. We are not throwing doctrine aside so that we can be unified. Far from it. I trust that will be quite clear as we consider what unifies us. First thing, kind of first bold heading in my part three, one body and one spirit. That's what Paul says. There's one body, the body of Christ, universal, of which all local churches and all the saints are a part. United to Jesus, now a part of his body, we all are a part of that. One spirit, obviously the Holy Spirit, who builds and empowers the church. There has been one spirit, the spirit of God at work in the church for 2,000 years. We stand in a line of saints who have gone before, and should the Lord Jesus tarry, there will be many saints who come after. We all are a part of the one body of Christ built by the Spirit of God himself. Moving forward, though, one hope, Paul says. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We all as Christians have a common inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the best way to say it, but we're all headed to the same place. Namely, the new heavens and the new earth forever with God. As heaven will come down, we all are going to be with the Lord forever and with each other. 
we together will be presented pure and blameless alongside Christ. We will be a part of that great multitude that no one can count from every tribe and language and people and nation who are praising the Lord and giving glory to Him. We together will have every tear wiped from our eyes. We together with God, beholding Christ as He is, will live in a redeemed creation together. In perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect gratitude, perfect rest for all of eternity. One hope to which we have been called. That's a source of our unity. Next, this next piece is huge. Paul says, after all that, one body, one spirit, one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The one Lord is Jesus. He's the Lord of us all. The one faith, let's think about this for a minute. The one faith is the faith of trusting in that one Lord alone. This is the faith, definite article, once and for all delivered to the saints. In other words, brothers and sisters, perhaps the greatest source of our unity is the fact that we have all been united to Christ and we're all in Him, and we now have a common confession about Jesus and the way of salvation. We have a common confession about Jesus and who He is. We understand that Jesus is God the Son who existed from eternity and never got started who took upon himself human flesh 2,000 years ago and became Jesus of Nazareth. We understand that he is truly God and truly man, the one mediator between God and man. We believe that. It's a part of the one faith. And we also share a common confession about what he, Jesus, did for us. We believe because the Bible tells us so that He came and fulfilled all righteousness, that He kept the law perfectly, that He lived a sinless life, that He served in that sense as our representative, so that by faith in Him, we might be counted with all of His righteousness and holiness. We also know that He came to die for us in our place, to pay our debt, to pay our penalty, to bear the wrath of God that we deserve. He served in that way as our substitute, taking upon himself what we should be taking upon ourselves, paying it in full so that we are free in him. So we have a common confession about Jesus, who he is, and about what he has done, and about the way of salvation, namely, that all of that, the righteousness and holiness of Christ, the satisfaction that he made for sins, the debt paid, the wrath born, that all of that is counted to sinners, not by works, but by faith. We, uniquely in the scope of world religion, believe that we cannot do anything in and of ourselves. We can't do anything to contribute to our salvation. This is a part of the one faith. We gather, like we do like we did, excuse me, this morning, we gather knowing because of the one faith, we know who and what we are. 
There is a tremendous kind of unity that is built in a congregation when we gather knowing our collective need of Jesus. It's a part of the one faith. Ours is the faith that says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That's a scandalous message to a human race that is born with an inherently legal spirit where we think that we must do it. I must do it. Surely I have to contribute something. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You want law, friend? All it will do is crush you. When it comes to your standing before the Lord, all it will do is crush you. But we are crushed by God's law that we might be driven to His Christ. But now, says Paul, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is our faith. Not by works, by faith, our debt paid, our sins washed away, the very righteousness of God counted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We have that in common. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What's that about? Does it mean that everybody practices baptism and administers it the same way? No. But it means that baptism, in terms of what it is, is the same for all the saints. In terms of what it signifies, namely our union with Christ. We have been united to Him in His death and burial. We, Galatians 2.20, have died to the law in Christ. We have been buried with Him. We have been united to Him also in His resurrection and have been raised to walk in newness of life. We have been cleansed from sin. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit in Christ, eternally secured. We have one baptism that is a sign of God's promise to us and a pledge of His faithfulness to us. One baptism. We share that in common. As we consider all of these wonderful things, are you not beginning to see that in spite of our differences, why and how we are unified? I know you see it. You're thinking like I am, like, yes, brother, how could we not be united and unified with all of these things in common? Now, in the things that I'm about to say, I'm not saying that these are insignificant, detractors. How could we not have unity with these things in common? Who cares about politics and COVID-19 and how we should navigate that stupid thing? Who cares about the color of our skin? Who cares about whether we're male or female? Who cares about whether we have a postgraduate degree or barely a high school education? Who cares? Who cares about whether we have a lot of money in the bank or we're living paycheck to paycheck? What difference does that make? We have Christ in common. And it's not. Like I said, it's not that those things are unimportant. The unity we have in Christ is not meant to just erase all distinctions. There's unity in the distinction. And it glorifies God. And it makes it very clear that there is something that transcends all of those differences that's the greatest thing. That's what makes the church unique. 
and struggle as we might and wound each other as we might, as dumb as we might be toward each other sometimes, God in His grace holds us together. We have the same spirit. We have the same faith. We have the same confession. We have the same baptism. We are all equally desperate for the grace of God. Own that one. Doesn't matter how well your life may be going, we are all equally desperate. Were it not for God's grace, there we would go doing anything and everything that the world is destroying itself with. We are called, brothers and sisters, by the same name. We are called to the same living and eternal hope. And we agree on these things. And these things are most dear to us. But that's not all that the apostle says, even in these verses. Put your eyes on verse 6. We have one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we have one God who made us and sustains us. But he is not just God to us. He is also Father to us. None but the saints call God Father. But all of the saints call him that. For we, note that corporate language, we have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but rather the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Martin Luther wrote a famous hymn, we sing it often here at CBC, called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that hymn, he writes of the one little word that will fell the devil. It goes this way. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And Martin Luther wrote about that hymn that in his mind, according to God's word, that that one little word that destroys the devil is Abba. The fact that the church, the children, all call God Father. He is not our judge. He is not hard. He's, in every good way I could mean it, he's daddy. He is father. He loves us. He's kind to us. He is inclined to be gentle and tender toward us and desires to be. That word that we all confess together, that we all, weak or strong, rich or poor, black or white, Father, that word destroys the devil and his power. That word demonstrates that God is for us, and that word unifies the church. All of us have that relationship to him. We all together are his children, part of his family. In just a moment, we will come to the Lord's table together. Communion, you understand, is common union. We will come to the table to feed on 
Christ by faith to participate together in his body broken for us and his blood spilled for us. And in light of what we've been considering today, I hope that the table, if possible, will be especially sweet for us today. This table represents the greatest thing we have in common, the common union that we have in Christ. We have been united to him as sons and daughters of the Father, and this is now our identity. It's who we are. So let's seek to encourage one another all the time with that truth. And now let's pray. Father, we are struck by the privilege that it is to call you that. We thank you that you have been so gracious and good to us so as to bring us from death to life, darkness to light, death to life, all of those things. You have united us to your son. We pray that you would continue to minister to us now, that as we come to your table, that we would be sustained, that we would be nourished, that we would be strengthened and encouraged in Christ. Father, we pray that you would continue to knit us together in love and unity. That this congregation on the south side of Asheville would be a pointer to the greatness of your son and the wonder of your gospel. We pray for your grace in this. We're desperate for your help, as always. We pray in Jesus' name.